Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. If you have your Bible, uh, whether you're here in the room or you're joining us online at home, open it to Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a physical Bible with you, why don't you get out your smartphone or your tablet or wherever you read scripture. I, I want you to have your Bible open to that because we are going to point a couple things out to you that I want you to see. We're in the final week of our series called What to Say When You Pray. And we've spent six weeks on these six lines of scripture that we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer. And through this, we've been learning how to pray according to this pattern that Jesus set out for us. But we've also been asking you, our church, to be praying some prayers along with us. There are four prayers that we've asked for you to be praying. We've been praying these as a staff. Our elders have been praying these, and we are asking you to be praying these as well. And again, if you're here uh, on location, these are available at the Info Hub. If not, they're on our app. They're on uh, our website at genesischurch.me. Just go to the What's Happening page. But the four prayers are these. Number one, we're asking God to ignite a passion in each of us for helping people find their way back to God. You know, that's our mission statement as a church, helping people find their way back to God. But if it's not each and every one of our mission statements, then it's not going to happen. The second one, we're asking God to give us wisdom to discern his will for Genesis Church. We want to be... Uh, working where he's working and not doing anything outside of what he has for us. We're asking him to help us abide and obey with courage and boldness. And I think that's so important because friends, if, if there's a couple things that the world needs from the church right now, uh, number one is, is probably courage. And number two is compassion. And that's the last one. Teach us to have compassion, to love and serve others well. And so even though this is the last week of our series, you can take these with you. You can still be praying these along. We're not going to stop praying these prayers. And so we'd love for you to be praying them along with us. Let's just take a moment there and, and pray right now. Would you pray with me? Uh, God, we pray uh, in Jesus' name that you would ignite a passion in each of us for helping people find their way back to God. We ask you to give us wisdom to discern your will for Genesis Church. Lord, we don't want to be working anywhere that you're not working. We ask that you would help us to abide in you. Jesus, we want to abide in you. Your word says that if we abide in you, that, that we can do great things, but apart from you, we can do nothing. We ask that you help us to abide and obey with courage and boldness. And Lord, teach us to have compassion, to love and serve others well through our Christmas offering, through other opportunities that we have throughout the holidays to serve other people. Lord, help us to do that well as a church. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, happy December, everybody. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm the executive pastor here. I do want to wish you happy December. I've got a question for you. How many of you, since it's now December, how many of you have your Christmas trees up now? Raise your hand uh, at home. You can drop us a note in the comments. Good, good, good. How many of you have uh, lights up on your house? Almost as many. Okay. Uh, have you started listening to Christmas music yet? Anyone? Or watching Christmas movies? Yeah, good. How many of you started in July? <laughs> okay, me too. Uh, hey, it's been a hard year, Okay. Um, I wonder how many of you have started Christmas shopping? Anybody started Christmas shopping yet? Okay. Has anybody finished Christmas shopping? Oh my goodness. You guys, you're overachievers. Hey, let me ask you this. How many of you have started reading the Christmas story in your Bible yet? Anybody? I, I, I've had a lot of friends who have said that they were going to put up their Christmas lights early or their tree early or start listening to Christmas music early because they wanted to bring some light like into this dark world, right? But let's not forget. I just want to encourage you, church. Let's don't forget that the reason we celebrate this season is because God sent his one and only son to live on earth as a baby and then as a man and to be a pattern for us. And let's remember that we can send that message 
uh, wherever we go, that when we're putting up lights, we're putting up our tree, that what we're really telling the world is that Jesus has come. And so hopefully that you'll start like reading through that story and see what it means that God sent his son to earth. Well, the Christmas story kicks off with this really interesting phrase in Luke chapter two. It says this, it says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And no, we're not starting our Christmas series today. That starts next week. But I want you to see that this very first passage in the Christmas story uh, reminds us that this part of the world was being ruled by a kingdom. The kingdom of this time and this place uh, was the Roman Empire, and Caesar Augustus was its king. And the reason why he decided it was time to conduct a census, the main reason anyway, was because it was time to start collecting taxes. And by taking a census, he could understand who was living where and throughout the Roman Empire and how much in taxes that they might be able to collect. And because taxes meant great wealth for the emperor, uh, taxes meant they could build things like the Roman Colosseum, you know, which would stand in all of its glory in Rome, a marvel of the time, or, or like the Roman roads, which would be uh, a, a real technological marvel of the time. And those kind of things would bring glory and honor to Caesar the king. But the Christmas story reminds us that far from Caesar's palace, you know, 1,500 miles uh, from Rome in a little town in the Middle East that God was getting ready to usher in a new kingdom. And, it, and it's one that will last forever. It's not a kingdom of strength and domination as we tend to think about those things. It's a kingdom that God invites us into and it's built overflowing with goodness and peace. And so today, uh, 2,000 years later, Rome is no longer an empire, but a single city ho housed in another country because no earthly kingdom or government will last forever. It's a reminder that we can't live for ourselves and that we shouldn't put our hope and our trust in the wrong places. And so as we wrap up our series called What to Say When You Pray, we're gonna finish by seeing how our prayers can have a role in helping to bring God's kingdom here to earth. And so six weeks ago when we started this series, we started in Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, one says this. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. You know, there was something about the way that Jesus prayed and how it influenced his life that the disciples admired. And it didn't take them long following him around, seeing how he interacted with people, seeing how he would often go away to lonely places and pray. It didn't take the disciples long to realize that prayer was kind of the secret sauce behind everything that Jesus did. And because the whole point of being a disciple is to model your life after someone, right? To follow someone, they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And you know, that's still true for us. If we're gonna model our life after Jesus, if we want him to be the Lord of our life, we need to do what he did. And that includes praying how he prayed. And pray, prayer is just how we talk to God, how we relate with God. And Jesus understood this. He knew how important it was for all of his disciples to understand that. And so he taught them this pattern of prayer. And this is what he said. He said, when you pray, say this. He said, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 
Amen. And hopefully as I was reading that, you were looking at this screen because if you were reading it in your Bible, you may have noticed something that would alarm you. (laughs) Uh, And it's that in many of your Bibles, in in fact, in most of the translations we read today, this last line isn't there. In fact, there may just be in your Bible a little footnote that says, some late manuscripts include, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. So if it's not in most of our modern translations, why do we read it? Why do we say it? Why do we pray it? Well, first of all, it's possible that Jesus didn't say those words, at least not in that place, in that moment. These words aren't found in the oldest, most reliable transcripts of the Bible. And so we don't know for sure, but some people speculate that as this prayer the Lord's Prayer was adopted by the early church that uh, it was embraced as a prayer to be read aloud and they would add this little doxology to the end which would be how they finished many of their prayers. It's not unusual that that would happen so maybe that's what happened. But some theologians have a different take. Well-read men like N.T. Wright, for instance, who's a pastor and author and a great theologian, says this doxology was already well-established within a century or so of Jesus' day and he says this, He says, it's actually inconceivable within the Jewish praying styles of the day that Jesus would have intended the prayer to stop simply with deliver us from evil. In other words, that even in the day that the Jews would have added something like this to the end of the prayer. So even if Jesus didn't say those words in that situation, uh, they're still true and they're still scriptural. In fact, it's possible, if you know your Old Testament really well, it's possible that these words may have been drawn from an ancient prayer from King David. Now, David was king of Israel. He lived about a thousand years before Jesus. And there was a prayer that we see captured in scripture uh, that was at a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. See, David's often revered as the greatest king of Israel. He was one of the very early kings of Israel and he had everything. He, he owned everything. He had great wealth. He, he had great uh, wisdom. He had great armies. He, um, was, he had everything that people could ever desire, but he had this desire for more. And maybe you get that sometimes too. Like, I'm happy, I'm satisfied, but I feel like there might be something more to life. Like, I'm, I, I like my job okay. I'm able to feed my family, but isn't there something a little bit more that should be happening? Or I'm, you know, I'm serving in this ministry or I'm leading a group or I'm in this really great Bible study, but I feel like there's more that I could be doing. You ever get that feeling? David had that feeling, that discontent from the Lord. And his discontent probably came from his desire to bring glory and honor to God because he had all of this stuff. The Lord had blessed him with all of these things and all of this power and his heart was so full of gratitude that his dying wish was to do something significant as a sign that he wanted to give all the credit, all the glory back to God at the end of his life. And here's what he wanted to do. He wanted to build a temple. And, and uh this this discontent came from his desire to do even greater things from God. And so he wanted to build a temple for God. And 1 Chronicles 29 records the beginning of that temple, that David envisioned this magnificent structure, something to be marveled at, something like people would marvel at the Colosseum in Rome many, many years later. But but this would be uh, not for David's glory, but for God's glory. And the temple would cause people to awe at its size and design and they would look at it and go, man, the builder of this must have been something great, but David wanted to take all that glory and draw it to God. 
that people would give glory to him. And so to get this project rolling, David invited the people to give financially to the building of the temple. And then David led the way. David went first. Uh, The text records that David gave a gift of gold and silver that some historians estimate that in today's dollars would be be worth about $5 billion. Now, don't worry. This is not a giving sermon. We're not going to do that this close to Christmas. But we, we all know, don't we, that financial gifts usually come out of the overflow of what's happening in our hearts, right? That, that what we're able to give and what we choose to give is an indication of, like, where our heart is. And, you know, last, this past week was Giving Tuesday, and maybe you saw online some really cool uh, gifts and things that happen on Giving Tuesday. Maybe you were able to make a gift that uh, you thought was really, really great. Uh, some people suggest that this $5 billion that David gave represented everything he had. And that kind of generosity would have been unheard of for a king at the time. You know, kings were in the business of bringing glory to themselves and building their own kingdom. And so to give a gift that represented all or most of what he had, that would have been unheard of at that time. But David gave it all back to God in an act of humility and devotion. He gave it all back to God saying, God, this is yours. It came from you and I'm giving it back to you. And the really cool thing about this story is that the people followed David's example. We see it in scripture that people gave generously to the work of building the temple. And it was as they were bringing their gifts that David voiced this prayer. You can find it in 1 Chronicles 29. I'll put it up here on the screen. He says this, see if this sounds familiar to you. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You were exalted as head over all. See, that, that prayer sounds just like the end of the Lord's prayer, doesn't it? David's heart was so full of gratitude that his dying wish was to see God's rule and his reign and his presence here on earth. And Genesis, that's exactly what God wants to do in each of us right, that, and through our church, that if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God isn't living in some far-off temple somewhere in the Middle East. He's living here inside of you. God's presence is in each and every one of us. And with God's help, you have the potential of bringing God's presence to other people and to bring his hope and his love to others in this world. And the birth of Jesus just initiated the arrival of God's kingdom here on earth. And today, his kingdom is here and it's still on its way. And we're living in this really weird time in history where that's true. We're kind of in this in-between moment where God's kingdom is here, it's here on earth, but it's still on its way. Jesus came to earth. He initiated the God, God coming as a man to the earth, but at the same time, he promises he's coming back. And if I can be real honest, like as a Christian, that sometimes makes some challenges that we face in life really, really tough because we are in this weird in-between stage. And so sometimes something will happen to us and I wonder like, is this something that I'm supposed to fix or is this something that Jesus is fixing when he gets back? Do you, do you ever get that, that feeling, that question in you? Like, is this something that I'm supposed to do something about? Am I supposed to put all my time and effort and energy behind fixing this problem or is this something that I just gotta give up and give to God? That makes it really hard, doesn't it? Because we're living in this in-between moment. And uh, this is why the final, or final line of that world's, the Lord's prayer is so important and so appropriate. When we pray this, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen. We are begging God, like we're pleading with him. God, please, I want you to 
take me out of my kingdom and bring me back into your kingdom. Uh, uh, bring your kingdom here instead. And, and at the same time, we're putting ourselves in our place. We're reminded why we're even here on earth. And it's not to collect power and glory for ourselves. It's not to build our own kingdom. We're saying, no, Lord, take it. It's your kingdom. It's your power and your glory. Take it, Lord. It's all yours. But so often, I got to tell you that my life looks like me trying to build my kingdom. And, and so many times I'm trying to do everything I can out of my own power. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't do something that I hope will bring me glory. I mean, most of us live our lives that way in my kingdom, by my power, for my glory. And when we pray this powerful line, we can one by one release these things back to God, these things that belong to him. They're his anyway. We can say, God, it's yours. I understand it's your kingdom. God, I wanna live by your power, not by my power. God, I wanna live for your glory not by my glory. So let's quickly just break these down one by one and see what practically they mean for us. The first one says this, yours is the kingdom. And we always like to say around here that God's kingdom happens anywhere God is king. You know, all of us have a kingdom. We all have a place where we're in charge, where we get to make the calls, where we get to make the decisions, right? And we like, it's good to be king. Sometimes it's good to be king. We, you know, if, you're, if you lead people at work, you have a kingdom. You've got some people that you get a boss around. You get to tell what to do. You get to make the decisions, right? If you're a, if you're a parent or you head a, head a household, like you're the king of that, it may not feel like it all the time, parents. I understand. You may feel like you're at the mercy of your kids, but you are the king of that household. You get to make the decisions. You get to lead in that area. If you're a teacher or a coach, that's an area that's a kingdom of yours. If, students, if you lead a study group, maybe you're a captain on your team. Uh, you are... That's your kingdom. You know, all of us have this place or place, places where we lead, where we get to make the decisions and somewhere we follow and we're subject to other people's decisions. And I think, honestly, one of the greatest tests of our character is how we treat people when we're the one in charge. Like, like what do we do with their ideas? How do we handle their mistakes? How do we reward them? How do we discipline them? How do we care for them? Well, when we're king, we get to decide these things, and that's why we like to be king because we're not relying on anybody else's decisions. We're not relying on anybody else to make the call. Like, we get to make the call. Now, the people of God, uh, the people of Israel, when they were waiting for their king to come to earth, they wanted him to come in and usher in a physical kingdom, like where, where the king would come and rule over the people, and he would destroy the Roman Empire with an iron fist, and he would crush their leaders, and he would rule over all the people but Jesus didn't come that way. He ushered in a spiritual kingdom, not a physical one. In fact, you may remember this at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. One of the very first things that happens is he's led into the wilderness and he's tempted by Satan for 40 days. And if you know this story, Satan waits till he gets nice and hungry and thirsty and then starts to tempt him with this real power grab. And one of the things that he tempts him with is he says that you can be the head of all the kingdoms of the earth. But Jesus turned it down in exchange for his spiritual kingdom. And because he turned it down, today he's called the king of heaven. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of Asia. the king of kings. Pilate asked him, are you the king? And Jesus said, yes, I am the king, but my kingdom is not of this world. See, earthly kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall 
but there's a kingdom that won't change. And our goal should be to bring all of our little kingdoms in alignment with his kingdom, capital K kingdom, with, with God's kingdom, which what that means for me is that my money is his. That my workplace is my mission field. That's the place where I'm going to go help people find their way back to God. My teammates, uh, my fellow students are my potential disciples. My family belongs to him. It exists to bring my family into his kingdom. My ministry is his. My dorm floor is an opportunity to demonstrate what it means to be a kingdom worker. That anywhere, anywhere we go, any place we work, any place we live, any place we play is an opportunity for us to demonstrate the love of Jesus to people. So when we say for yours is the kingdom, it means we're inviting people, we're inviting Jesus to rule over every part of our life. We're saying, Lord, you take the throne of my life. I don't want to sit on the throne anymore. I don't want to be the king anymore. I don't want to make all the decisions. Following Jesus means exactly that. It means we're going to follow him, letting him take the lead and influence every part of our lives. He says, for yours is the kingdom and yours is the power. And like I said, I spend so much of my life trying to live out of my own power. And sometimes that looks like not asking for prayer when I could desperately use prayer. Uh, sometimes that means I carry my own burdens because I don't want to bother anybody else with them. You don't, you, I know you ask me how I'm doing, but you don't really care anyway. You don't want to hear the sob story that is my life right now. So let me just tell you, I'm doing fine. I'm okay. You can go away. You can feel good because you asked me, but I'm not going to really tell you what's going on in my life because First of all, I don't want to burden you with it. I don't want you to have to carry it. Second of all, I don't want you to gossip about it. And third of all, you probably don't care anyway. So I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to carry it myself. Um, hopefully that's not any of you, but that's me every once in a while, right? That happens. Uh, sometimes when my wife asks me what's wrong, I snap out of it and put on a brave face and say nothing because I don't want to drag her into the muck with me. Can anybody relate to that? I'm trying to live out of my own power. And sometimes living out of my own power means I don't ask for help when I could desperately use help. But when we say yours is the power, we're recognizing that God has unlimited power. He has infinite power. And that power is available to help us in our weakness. Look at what uh, Paul prayed for the church in Ephesus. He prayed this in Ephesians 1. He said, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That's God, to which God has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And then look at this. He says, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. For us who believe, we have access to incomparably great power. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That power is available to us as followers of Jesus, that Christ right now is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now that to me sounds like power. Doesn't that sound like power? Now I know as Christians sometimes that we uh, want God's power to be exerted in an election or you know, in our worldly kingdom. Like we want, we want who we want in charge, but why would we settle for the, and, and uh, listen to me. Hey, Christians, you should vote. You should care about political issues. You should make your voice heard. But why would we put all of our hope in a power that is temporary and that isn't going to last? Folks, it ain't going to last. We, you know what's 
brilliant about the way this country was founded is that our political powers last four years or maybe eight if they're really good, right? And that's all we get. You know how long God's kingdom lasts? Forever. You know how long his power lasts for? Forever. Why would we settle for an earthly power when we have access to the incomparably great power that raised Christ from the dead? His kingdom is significantly different than the territorial kingdoms of this world because it's built on love and not on military force. This participation, participation is voluntary and not mandatory. And its full realization is not just now, but it's in the future, not just in the present. His is an eternal, permanent kingdom. If you remember, the angel told Mary, of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, we all love the security of things we can control. You know, we love the security of earthly things, whether it's money or a home or food or alcohol or the warm glow of a television or a website, but that is false control. That's, that's fake security. But when we learn to trust in God's power and submit our power to his power, we find rest. We find peace. We find real security. So we pray for yours is the kingdom and the power. And then we pray yours is the glory. When we say yours is the glory, what we're doing is we're giving God credit for all the good things he's done for us. The Bible says that we exist for the praise of his glory, that that's the whole reason that God made us, that he brought us to earth is uh, to, to give him glory. But yet our ego, my ego, wants to take the glory for itself instead of giving that glory to God. Glory means greatness or splendor or significance, and that's stuff that we all want. And that's why we're so tempted, I think, to take it for ourselves because we want significance. We want to feel significant, right? We want to feel important. We, we all want some glory. And so when we post something on Instagram, we post the best family picture, right? Not the one where we're blinking or the one where the kids are going crazy. We post the best one. Uh, we post the picture of the Thanksgiving feast that we shared over, but not the pie that we dropped on the floor or the yelling and screaming it took to get it there, right? We, we post our Spotify most playlist to prove that we listen to everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some of us are being revealed this week. Yeah, you listen to all that One Direction, guys. I get it. Okay. We all want some glory. We all want the attention, right? But here's the truth. The quest for glory will leave you empty. The pursuit of us will leave us dissatisfied. When we're so worried about what other people will think about us and whether or not they will give us glory, we cannot be authentic we cannot be secure and we cannot be real with people when we care too much about what they think. But when we seek to live for his glory, that's when we can discover peace and, cont and contentment. So we say for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Forever. His kingdom has no end. By the way, um, do you know what you'll see when you go to the Roman Colosseum today? Has any, have any of you been to the Roman Colosseum? Only a few of you. You know what you see if you go there? This temple built to the great Caesar in the greatest of all civilizations, in, in the place that tried and failed to kill Jesus, the coming king. You know what you'll see there? Well, of course you'll see the Colosseum, but it's crumbling, right? It's, it's in ruins. The remains are there. All around you'll see signs of this once great empire that is now gone, but right in the middle of the Colosseum, you know what you'll see? You'll see this, a giant cross. Why? Because that's the symbol of a kingdom that has no end. Like his power is eternal. His glory is everlasting. Serving him, being, being transformed by him and praising him is not a burden, but a joy because we get to go live with him forever. 
Author Pete Grieg says this. He says, to pray the closing lines of the Lord's Prayer is to give the kingdom, the power, and the glory back to God. It's to give him our little empires, family, ministry, career, and say, yours, Lord, is the kingdom. It's to give him the power bases we've built and to say, yours, Lord, is the power. It's to give him our credibility, our trophies of success, and say, yours, Lord, is the glory forever and right now. See, this part of the Lord's Prayer isn't just a wish list. It's not just a, a nice way to end a prayer. It's a prayer of surrender. It's like we're giving up the stuff that we act like is ours, but rightly belongs to God, and we're giving it back to him. We're relinquishing it to him. It's submitting our own kingdom, our own power, our own glory to the only one who's worthy of it all. And just as David gave everything back to God when he built the temple, this prayer is an opportunity for us to give everything back to God as well. Which brings me to the last word in this prayer. And it's the word, amen. Now, amen is the word we typically use to end a prayer, but it's so much more than just a nice way to tie a bow on a prayer. It, it literally means, yes, I agree, or so be it. It's an emphatic way of voicing agreement. So when we say amen, what we're doing is we're affirming this prayer and we're affirming our commitment to it. In that way, you could say that amen is not just an ending, but it's, it's kind of a beginning too, right? We're, we're saying, I agree with that. Let's make it so. So as we wrap up this series, here's what I want to try with all of you. And you can play along at home if you're joining us there too. I'm going to read each individual line of the Lord's Prayer. And then I'm going to give a statement or two just that we've learned throughout this six weeks about what we're what we've said about that line. And when we do that, I'm gonna invite each of you, wherever you are, to respond with amen. And in that way, you're adding your voice to the prayer saying, yes, I agree with this prayer, so be it. And so here it goes. The first line is this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And when we say that, we're, we're praising God for being a relational, intimate God who is near to us. Thank you for all of your blessings. We adore you, amen? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking God to help us to see the needs of the people around us as we intercede for them. Uh, show us, Lord, how to join you in bringing more of your kingdom to earth. Amen? Amen? Give us today our daily bread. We bring our needs and wants to you, God. We trust you to provide. Amen? Amen. And forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. We confess, God, the ways that we have turned our backs on you and your wisdom and have gone our own way. We stand in your victory. Amen? Amen. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We're saying, God, open our eyes to the spiritual realities all around us and strengthen us for the real battle. Amen? Amen. And finally, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We're saying we surrender to you, God. May our lives be for your kingdom and your power and your glory. Amen? Amen. Amen.